0: Please turn in your Bibles to Acts 18, and uh, prior to reading that, I want to read one verse from Hosea, Hosea 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. And Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to honor it, to worship you through it, and I pray that you would take the feebleness of Uh, man's lips, that you would cause your word to be quickened to the hearts of your people and that uh, even the responses that we make as we look at your word would be responses uh, quickened by your spirit and pleasing in your sight. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. Before the service, Tom said, look at the bulletin here. It says, um, you're reading verses 28 and 29. He says, 29 doesn't exist in the Scripture. You start speaking on that, we're walking. <laughs> That's good for you, good for you, right. <laughs> now, before we go on into chapter 19, I wanted to give one more message from uh, chapter 18. Many of us have friends in the emerging church movement, uh, sometimes called the emergent church movement, uh, although some people make distinctions between uh, the two. But I thought the last two verses of this chapter formed a nice summary of the differences that exist between the Christianity in the Bible and postmodern uh, Christianity. There's dozens of emerging church books that you can find in our local bookstore. Uh, some of you may have purchased some of these yourselves. They're very popular, bestsellers, and. Uh, With some of our friends knowing some of these things, evangelicals endorsing and recommending some of these books, Rick Warren and others who have endorsed them, this really is an issue that we can't just ignore and hope will go away. It's not going to go away. And this struck me with real force a couple of weeks ago when I was dialoguing with a a friend in missions. Uh, He's been a friend for a number of years and he shocked me by defending the emerging, emerging church movement. At one point, he said, most of the people I know in these circles are deeply faithful and profoundly committed to authentic expressions of Christianity. Uh, He really vigorously objected to my speaking of the heresies that are within uh, this movement. And in my interactions with this guy, I was shocked to see the degree to which he was thinking in a postmodern way. And I've been grieving since that time, uh, realizing this is everywhere. And as I've studied this uh, doctrine, uh, this movement over the last, oh, several months, actually it was Brad who got me really thinking on this. He's given me a number of quotes and uh, indicated this is a movement that we've got to be thinking about. I've realized that the emerging church movement is not just a fringe movement, it is... Going into every nook and cranny of Christianity, it is even infecting Orthodox uh, denominations. Seems uh, to fit quite well with the thinking of government schooled kids because all they've been trained in has been postmodern thinking, and the two really uh, do dovetail. But it's especially been attractive to those who would tell Apollos. Come on, Paulus, let's be positive. Let's not be fighting over these doctrinal issues. Doctrine divides, love uh, unites. Just this past week I read this. Creeds, they say, are dungeons for the old. Catechisms are fetters for the young. And doctrine in general, at least if precise and defined, is inconsistent with liberty of thought and expansion of intellect. We're living in a world that does not want to be pinned down on what it believes. Just this past week, I saw a, uh, a, a big, um, what do they call them, billboard that uh, shows the kind of attitudes where people just are not patient with the kind of debates that went on in New Testament times. Uh, the, the billboard said simply, Christianity, a life, not a dogma. Now, I could just as well have said Christianity is love, not rigid theology. It is relationship, not creed. It is mystical experience, not stuffy preaching. But as we're going to be seeing this morning, we cannot even properly define love, godly relationship, or safe experiences without theology. And so the first thing that I want you to notice about this section is that words were important to Apollos, and the meaning of those words were important to Apollos as well, He did not take the attitude, oh, you know, what the Jews believe, that's good for you and this is good for me and there may be some other doctrines that are good for others. No, in verse 27, it was very important to him what other people believed about words and the words that they used. And in verse 28, it was important to him to refute words that were wrong. In a nutshell, he believed in propositional truth. He believed that there are really sentences that can be labeled as either true or false. Apparently, that's becoming radical in today's environment. Confessions of faith are considered arrogant and authoritarian. Uh, When you speak the truth of Scripture to people, they will immediately say, yeah, well, whose interpretation of the truth? Is it going to be the Baptist or the Presbyterian or the Mormon or, you know, the Roman Catholic... And they don't say this to give us a degree of humility about our finite minds and our inability. What they're saying is no one can really know what the Bible means. Uh, They are trying to engender uh, skepticism in in people and they are opposed to certainty and knowledge. McMahon uh, describes this movement this way. They teach that you really can't understand the Bible, nor are you supposed to. Rather, you need to experience it. It's not what God says, but how you feel about it. Its content is to be received subjectively or experientially. They believe that preaching or teaching Bible doctrines is too authoritarian, so they turn to conversation about the Bible, and in many emergent churches, that replaces teaching from the pulpits. And so one of the consistent themes that I've been finding as I've been reading uh, their literature is that uh, they do not believe it is ever right to say, this person is wrong, this person is right about a given doctrine. Apparently, Apollos was arrogant in uh, their thinking. They believe truth is not something that is a, a fixed, unchanging thing. Instead, it's dynamic. It is growing. Al Mohler, uh, great uh, guy uh, rightly complains about Brian McLaren when he says, as a postmodernist, he considers himself free from any concern for propositional truthfulness and simply wants the Christian community to embrace a pluriform understanding of truth as a way out of doctrinal conflict and impasse. And so they speak of conversation, but not debate, a dialogue, but not certainty. Brian McLaren, one of the chief. Um, proponents of the new um, postmodern emerging church doctrine said this, the gospel is made credible not by how we argue and make truth claims. Apparently he disagreed with the approach of Apollos who did exactly that. Apollos should have entered into conversation with these people where nobody's wrong and everybody feels good about the conversation. David Bosch states, The old, old story may not be the true, true story, for we continue to grow, and even our discussion and dialogues contribute to such growth. In other words, the questions raised by postmodernism help us to grow. Now, they don't sprinkle every page in their books with statements like that, or they'd make uh, evangelicals a little bit nervous, but it is clear as you read their books that they are skeptical Of absolute truth claims. They are skeptical that truth can be, or words can be, the foundation of Christianity. They are skeptical of preaching that has any degree of certainty about it. But uh, words have always been important to God. He's always called for uh, confident preaching. As Mark Driscoll, who is one of the chief critics of the emerging church movement, said God is the first preacher. God proclaimed, God said, God said, God said, and life came from it. Preaching brings life. But Genesis 3 shows that God is not the only preacher. The serpent preaches as well. So it's not an issue of preaching versus non-preaching. The issue is of preaching that conforms itself to the Word of God. It's not an issue of words or no words, because they use words all the time. Uh, They write uh, prolifically, but it's an issue of right words as measured by the Bible. Now, why is this even relevant to us? You might think, you know, that's not even in our church. Why do we have to do this? How does it affect us? Well, don't be too sure that it does not affect us. Even though we are not an emergent church, and in one sense I'm preaching to the choir, we may still fail on some of the points that are in your outline there, just like the emergent church does Obviously, we don't theologically buy into their definitions and and ideas about words and doctrines and theology, but some of us act as if doctrine and words and Scripture are really not that critical, are really not that important. Have we grown weary of the debates that began in the New Testament times? The Bible calls us to reverence God's words, to live by them, to cherish them, to study them, to meditate upon them, to fight for them, look in Jude, to fight for them and to be transformed by them. Now, we may not hold to the heresy of the emergent church, but here's the question. Do we treat the words of Scripture as seriously and as passionately as Apollos did? Deuteronomy 32 says, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe, all the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Moses said these words are your life. Now, contrary to the objections of some who say that, that words... And doctrine and preaching are sterile and lifeless. Scripture says, your word has given me life and speaks of the comfort of scriptures and speaks of preaching, bringing life and salvation into the lives of people. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so my first application this morning is we need to do better than the emergence we need to at least act as if God's Word is living and life-giving in our most precious possession. And if we really believe that, we're going to be memorizing it, meditating upon it, making it a part of our life. Secondly, we need to see that truth and doctrine are practical. Now, some people think doctrine is just irrelevant to life, not practical at all. But verse 27 says that when this anti-postmodernist Apollos you know, came with his spiritual revolvers blazing, you know, into the battle there. Here's what it says about him. He greatly helped those who had believed through grace, and he did it through his doctrinal debates. Now, how does that give them any help? Well, I think in a number of different ways it helped them. And uh, it's, uh, you can look at that other places of Scripture here. He's just saying it did help them, but it gave them a foundation of certainty. They knew there was something stable in life. This is the only infallible word, uh, only infallible thing we have in life, but it's an anchor that gave them security. I think also it gave them a worldview that helped them to think in every area of life Christianly. Uh, it uh, transformed their, their lives because it was God's truth. Now, a postmodernist might disagree. He might come along and look at Apollos and the situation there And notice, all of these Jews feel very alienated from Apollos. And so, obviously, this is not working, guys. This is not very practical. It's not very useful because if it was, there'd be more unity here. But what we need to do is we need to define our terms of what is useful, what is practical from the Scripture itself. And what Luke says is even though those Jews continued to disbelieve the doctrines that were being taught Apollos was wildly successful. It was very useful. It was very practical, very helpful what he was doing. Now, if you want to see the incredibly practical results of teaching good doctrine, the doctrines of Christ, the doctrines of the Trinity, how they revolutionized Western civilization, how they impacted even people's views of civil government, I would encourage you to read a book by Rush R.J. Rushdoony called the foundations of social order. I think it will blow you away at how, how practical those doctrines were. And if you want to see some other ways in which doctrine affects our views of marriage and our views of church and other things, listen to my a series of sermons on the Trinity. It is a slander to say that doctrine is not practical. If you don't believe right doctrine, it will affect the way in which you think and the way in which you live. Luke made no exaggeration when he says of Apollos, he greatly helped them. His doctrine helped them. Now, another thing we find in this passage is that there was quite a difference between the Jews, and it says here, those who had believed. The Jews were outside of the kingdom, and those who had believed throughout the book of Acts were considered as being inside the kingdom. Now, emergent church leaders are a little bit nervous about any exclusionary language that says these guys are out, these guys are in, these guys are believers, these guys are unbelievers. As Dr. Sam Storms worded it, they dislike the way this biblical reality compels them to speak of who's in and who's out. They feel it requires an active discernment and judgment that only the arrogant and self-assured can make. And yet, Scripture insists, it mandates that we make exactly such judgments every time we preach the gospel and evangelize, every time we serve communion, every time we exercise church discipline, and every time we marry off one of our children. Because they can't marry unbelievers. They can't marry outside the faith. There are those who are in and there are those who are out. Now, the emerging church's concept of relational is quite different. It's not offending Buddhists and Muslims and other pagans out there but entering into dialogue and conversation with them. They insist, doctrine divides, love unites, but they fail to define love, discipleship, kingdom, followers of Jesus, church, and many other terms from the Bible. Brian McLaren said, I don't believe making disciples must equal making adherence to the Christian religion. It may be advisable in many, not all, circumstances, to help people become followers of Jesus and remain within their Buddhist, Hindu, or Jewish contexts, rather than resolving the paradox via pronouncements on the eternal destiny of people more convinced by or loyal to other religions than ours. We simply move on. To help Buddhists, Muslims, Christians, and everyone else experience life to the full in the way of Jesus while learning it better myself, I would gladly become one of them, whoever they are, to whatever degree I can, to embrace them, to join them, to enter into their world without judgment, but with saving love as mine has been entered by the Lord. Now, they speak of relationship with the world and the whole cosmos, but it is achieved by tearing down the protective walls of Jerusalem and then allowing Sanballat and Tobiah to join you. Now, if you don't know who Sanballat and Tobiah are, read the book of Nehemiah sometime. You're going to see that they were pagans out there who would say hey we want to be a part of what you're doing we're going to help you build your walls of jerusalem and nehemiah said no this is only for the people of god and they were very offended that they were excluded that they were not one of the insiders uh, that were in jerusalem but scripture speaks of a much more profound relationship that exists within the walls of jerusalem and it is only as we love one another enough to Encourage to exhort one another, to lay down our lives for one another, yes, on occasion to bring discipline to bear in each other's lives that we can sustain such fellowship. Now we've already seen in Acts 2: 40 through 47 and other passages that there was an incredible relationship. They talk about relationship all the time. But there was an incredible relationship going on within the church, and the debates that Apollos engaged in did not hinder that fellowship. It strengthened the fellowship, the relationship that tightened that relationship among disciples. Now, we're wanting to apply each one of these points. And here's my question to us. Does the emerging church have a valid criticism when they say that evangelicals do not ordinarily have authentic relationships? And I would have to say, in many of the cases, that is a, a very valid critique. Unfortunately, it is very valid. And if we're to be a testimony in our postmodern world, it is imperative that we practice the truths in the Scripture, the truths about relationship. Because the Bible doesn't just say, no man can come to the Father except through me. It also says, you can't even claim to know the Father if you don't love the brethren. And so if we as a church are to be a shining example, we have got to grow in our love for one another within this body. We've got to grow in our love for the brothers who are in the biblical body that is out there as well. And if we do that, the emergent critique uh, uh, will in part fall to the ground. The next part of verse 27 indicates that we have a rational faith. It speaks not of those who are authentic, though there is a place for authentic we've already seen, but it speaks of those who had believed. And why did they believe? Well, the word for at the beginning of verse 28 indicates it was because Apollos had preached a rational, intelligent faith that made distinctions between right and wrong, between orthodoxy and heresy. It was belief. Not feelings that got them saved. It was belief, not feelings, that distinguished them from the Jews. It was belief, not feelings, that was at the foundation of their Christianity. Now contrast that with the following statement by Brian McLaren. He said, As we move beyond modernity, we lose our infatuation with analysis, knowledge, information, facts, and belief systems, and those who traffic in them. Instead, We are attracted to leaders who possess that elusive quality of wisdom, think of James 3, who practice spiritual disciplines and whose lives are characterized by depth of spiritual practice, not just by the tightness of a belief system. Now, what he is advocating, when you read it all in context, is replacing a rational system of doctrine with an undefined relationship with God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for a relationship with God. I've preached on that a great deal in this congregation. But theirs is an undefined relationship with God. So the issue is that concepts such as relationship, wisdom, spiritual experience, and love need to be defined by the Bible. And I say this because the experiences that some of these emerging church leaders have had are more akin to Buddhism than they are to true, authentic Christian experience. In fact, some of them, like the prayer labyrinth, are downright demonic. And I can explain more about that if uh, any of you have read about that. And yet, what are we finding? We're finding evangelicals flocking to hear these uh, so-called the evangelical gurus. They long for the overwhelming experiences that some people have experienced in the contemplative prayer movement. And so they get sucked in. Experience that is not grounded in Scripture can lead us astray so easily. And uh, just consider the ridiculous extremes that experience has led Tony Campolo to. He said, beyond these models of reconciliation, a theology of mysticism provides some hope for common ground between Christianity and Islam. Both religions have within their histories examples of ecstatic union with God. That's what they're longing for, this ecstatic union with God. I want to feel good. I want to feel better. He goes on. I do not know what to make of the Muslim mystics, especially those who have come to be known as the Sufis. What do they experience in their mystical experiences? Could they have encountered the same God we do in our Christian mysticism? Now, this is the Tony Campolo who is a speaker, very favored speaker in many evangelical circles. But what does Jesus pray? He prayed that His elect would know the truth and be united to the truth. He was praying for a rational Christianity. He says, "...and this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. For I have given them the words..." "...which You have given Me. And they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from You, and they have believed that You sent Me. I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours." And so Christ gave the apostles not skepticism, but a certain knowledge. Uh, They were given not a false unity with the world, but a real unity that was founded upon the Word of God. There was no call for unity based on experience, but a rational unity based on the truth. Now, let me give you a warning here just for our own circles. Any experience, and I don't care whether this is a charismatic experience, a reformed experience, uh, uh, you know, a yoga, I don't care what kind of experience it is. Any experience that bypasses your mind, dumbs down your mind, blanks out your mind, uh, makes you in some way irrational is not from the Holy Spirit. Because throughout the Scriptures, the Spirit of God is intent on illuminating. What He gives us light, not darkness. Even in 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, many people appeal to this, you know, for these kind of experiences. Read those chapters, and over and over again you will see that the Spirit of God wants us to understand. He wants us to use our minds. He's not bypassing the mind at all. This was uh, consistent with Uh, Other prayers that you find in the New Testament. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Ephesians 4. Uh, Here's what Paul longs for in Ephesians 4. "...till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men." in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So to exchange a rational faith for a mystical something is to give up Christianity. Okay? From beginning to end, the Christian faith is rational. In the early church of the first few centuries... They recognized this, and they rejected the irrational mysticism of the heretics who were outside the church. They recognized the danger. Now, how can we learn from this? Well, first of all, we must make sure that we are not content with contradictions in our faith and living. It is not honoring to God to embrace Irrationality. So teach your children logic, teach them doctrine, help them to be experts in the catechism, teach them rhetoric and how to refute error. And by the way, they're going to have a lot of practice in refuting error if you, if you just send them, okay? Practice your logic. What's wrong with these arguments here? Because our world is full of all kinds of error. Teach them apologetics and worldview and how to discern truth from error. Teach them to be rational. Do not allow our postmodern culture to make you intellectually lazy. Glory in modern debaters like Apollos. Glory in ancient theologians like Apollos. Glory in the fact that we have a rational faith. But it's not enough to have a rational faith because if we believe the Bible, our rational faith is going to force us to also have a supernatural faith. This is where the older liberals went wrong. Uh, They denied the existence of miracles or anything else that could not be scientifically... um, Uh, verified and so they went from rational faith where God's mind is the foundation and the starting point to rationalism where man's mind is the starting point instead of God's mind and they ended up giving away giving up a rational faith in the process Uh, Science couldn't explain angels and demons, so they deny their existence. Now, what's happened in the emergent church, they've gone to the opposite extreme and they are buying into irrational uh, supernaturalism, demonic supernaturalism. So, let's take a look at this. Verse 27 is a thoroughly Calvinistic verse. Of course, all the Bible is, according to my doctrine. But but it speaks of those who had believed through grace. Uh, Their belief was what? It was a gift of God's grace. Grace produced the belief. Belief did not usher them into grace. You've got to have grace first before you can believe. In fact, the Scripture is quite clear. Because of our depravity, no one could possibly believe if God did not, first of all, enable us to do so. And we've already seen several Scriptures in Acts. Uh, Lydia says, The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now, God didn't do any act of violence against her. He opened her heart, but He irresistibly drew Lydia to Himself. And without such supernatural grace, salvation would be impossible. Matthew 9, I think 19, excuse me, is quite clear on that. Uh, Jesus made it very clear, it would be easier to thread a huge camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Now, that's where modern socialists stop reading. They'll take that verse out of context. But I think that the, the disciples had it right. They understood what was the implication. They said, well, then who could be saved? If a rich man can't be saved, who could be saved? And then Christ's response was, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With men, what is impossible? It's what the disciples were astonished by. Who can be saved? And Jesus said, oh yeah, that's impossible. Nobody could be saved on their own. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. That's John 6, verse 44. Now that is the supernatural gospel that it is all of grace. It's all of Christ. It's all to God's glory. Okay, God's supernatural grace opens our understanding to understand the, wor- the Word and to understand how that word applies in our world. But when the emergent church leaders speak of supernatural, they're speaking of something totally different. They're speaking of something that is more akin, many times, to Buddhist and New Age concepts of supernatural. It is not sovereign grace which grabs our hearts and transforms us miraculously. In fact... I don't know any of them that are Calvinists. Uh, they're all either Arminian. Many of them are full-blown Pelagians. Some of them are openness of God uh, theologians. But their concept of supernatural is inner contemplation, technique, experience, art, yoga, smoke. Some are even going to you know Deepak Chopra, you know, to get some of his yoga experiences. And neither Leonard Sweet, Brian McLaren, or Jerry Hasselmeyer, who co-authored a book. And all of these quotes are, in, are going to be in the manuscript on the web, but uh, they don't have any problem with that. They said if, Western, if modern Western Christianity has become overly dualistic, let's just stop there for a moment, I don't think we're overly dualistic, there is the creator and there is the creation and there is a huge gap between the two, that's dualism, Right? We're not being overly dualistic. There is a creator-creature distinction. But anyway, they go on. They think we're overly dualistic. If modern Western Christianity has become overly dualistic, might a measured dose of Zen-like monism help correct our hyperdualism? And we must say absolutely no. Now, you don't see these quotes all of the time, but you can see this is the direction that they're leading evangelicals along, and these people are indeed monists. Many of them are anyway. Read Peter Jones and some of his critiques. He's done a marvelous job in showing the monism that is there. Uh, so yeah, th- here's the problem. Christians read this stuff, and they say, it's best-selling stuff, the guy's got humor, is really interesting reading, it's so practical, and they get sucked into this Christianity. They're flocking as a result to New Age writers, speakers like Deepak Chopra and other yoga yoga practitioners. Now, my application is this. What kind of supernatural are you looking to? Is it a man-centered supernatural that feels good to our flesh? Or is it a God-centered one that humbles the pride of man and exalts the glory of God? Is it a demonic supernatural of the New Age, or is it the biblical supernaturalism of Calvinism? You see, the postmodern world is ripe for takeover for demonic experiences because they're not anchored in the Word of God. And their worldview is the very opposite of Pauline Calvinism. The sixth thing that we see about the Christianity of Apollos was that it was passionate. Verse 28 says that he vigorously refuted the Jews. Apollos was passionate. He was serious about the truth of orthodoxy, and he was utterly, utterly intolerant of the Jewish heresies. Now, that kind of an attitude is anathema uh, to the emerging church. Philip Johnson has written some great critiques, and let me give you just one quote from him. He said, One thing the participants in the postmodern conversation simply will not tolerate, however, is someone who disagrees and thinks the point is really serious. Virtually no heresy is ever to be regarded as damnable. The notion that erroneous doctrine can actually be dangerous is deemed uncouth and naive. Every bizarre notion gets equal respect. Truth itself is only a matter of personal perspective, so, you see, everything is ultimately negotiable. Now, if you want to join the postmodern conversation, you're expected to acknowledge all of this up front, at least tacitly. That's the price of admission to the discussion. Once you're in... You can throw any bizarre idea you want on the table, no matter how outlandish. You can use virtually any tone or language to make your point, no matter how outrageous. But you must bear in mind that all disputation at this table is purely for sport. At the end of the day, you mustn't really be concerned about the truth or falsehood of any mere propositions, some conversation. The ground rules guarantee that truth itself will be a casualty in every controversy because, regardless of the substance or the outcome of the dialogue, participants have in effect agreed up front that the propositions under debate don't really matter. You see, the passion of a Martin Luther who railed against Rome is unthinkable in these circles. But look at Apollos. He was passionate, he was vigorous, he was going for broke in these discussions. Why? because eternal souls' destinies lay in the balance, because God's glory was at stake, because truth was at stake. <clears throat> and I think we make a big mistake when we get impatient with theological debate. We make a big mistake if we take the attitude, let's just stop fighting and all just get along. You know, I don't want to hear any more theological differences. But you know what? The Scripture says truth matters. And let me illustrate that with the doctrine of hell, which these men and women seem to abominate, and there are more and more evangelicals who seem to, even if they believe in it, be embarrassed to talk about it. Dr. Sam Storm says, if there is one undeniable common link between the theological liberalism of the last 150 to 175 years and contemporary emergent thought, it is the disinclination to discuss, if not an outright denial of the existence of... Hell. Many emergent believers, Brian McLaren being chief and most outspoken among them, aren't preoccupied with hell. They dislike the way this biblical reality compels them to speak of who's in and who's out. They feel it requires an act of discernment and judgment that only the arrogant and self-assured can make. Let me be brutally honest and forthright. I am unapologetically preoccupied with hell and for two simple reasons— First, the Bible says it is quite real. And second, the Bible says people are going there. I lie awake at night thinking about who's in and who's out. I'm utterly and unashamedly obsessed with hell because I believe it is real and because there are people I know and love who persist in the rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and who apart from repentance and faith in Him will spend eternity there. Do you have a similar passion for the lost? And if not, why not? Are you passionate in your prayer life? Are you passionate about your theology? Are you passionate about seeing America reformed and brought back to the Scriptures? Are you passionate about the doctrines of grace? Are you passionate about God's laws? You know, for many, many people in America, many evangelicals, they, they, it's hard to find anyone with that kind of a deep passion. It's an embarrassment about the weirdness of certain portions of the Bible that drives many emergent theologians. And I think the same weirdness about some of those passions has kept many Reformed people theologically silent. Or they just say the Old Testament is not uh, relevant. They're embarrassed by it. It's all throughout our culture. Now listen to God's attitude toward us when we lose our zeal for Him. Hosea 4, 6 says, "...My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge." Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. See, it was a disinterest in knowledge that made God disinterested in them. It was a disinterest in God's law that made God want to forget about them. What kind of Christianity do you have? The Christianity of Apollos was passionate And I would encourage you to ask God's Spirit to give you the same passion that he had. The seventh thing to distinguish the Christianity of Apollos from postmodern Christianity is that Apollos had antithesis written all over him. You know, Francis Schaeffer years ago warned the evangelical church, if you guys don't start preaching antithesis, the church will be a failure. And he was absolutely right. The church has been a failure. You look at the statistics of kids who are walking and leaving. Some denominations is as high as 90%, but you know, 75 to 90% kids leaving after college. Why? Why is this going on? Let me uh, first of all define antithesis. Antithesis is distinguishing between A and non A, saying that there is a difference between truth and error. This is heresy. This is orthodoxy. It's making a distinction between the truth. And what Francis Schaeffer said is you have not fully defended faith if you only affirm what is true. You've also got to deny what is false. You've got to deny the opposite. And this is what Apollos did. Look at verse 28. It says he vigorously refuted the Jews. He refuted them. Now, that's not politically correct. Anyway, Francis Schaeffer said to the extent that anyone gives up the mentality of antithesis, he has moved over to the other side, even if he still tries to defend orthodoxy or evangelicalism. This is where even the best of the emergent church is at. Even the best of them lack antithesis. Some of them are quite willing to affirm some truths, some doctrines of the creeds, They're willing, some of them, to identify with evangelicalism. They say, yeah, I'm an evangelical, but they are unwilling to refute the opposite. They want conversation, not debate. Now, you, when you come into the circle, you can affirm all kinds of evangelical things that maybe they don't believe. It does not bother them. What will bother them is if you say, but this opposite is a damnable heresy. Boy, they'll get irate with you at that point. They don't usually get irate over much, but they'll get irate uh, over that. If we are to have Reformation in our day, we need leaders with the same boldness as Apollos. Leaders who are willing to refute error. Leaders who have antithesis written all over them. Now this is what I love about the Coalition on Revival documents. Uh, These church leaders are calling the church back to repentance and they've made all kinds of affirmations and denials. And I think it's the denials portion of those documents that are the most significant. I love those denials because what they're doing is they're keeping closet liberals from being able to sign the statements. Those denials are keeping cowardly evangelicals from pretending to be reformers. Uh, th- those are great, uh, great statements. But above all, it's enabling us to say what we believe and what we do not uh, believe. We affirm this, we deny the opposite. And such clear thinking is absolutely essential. What I want you to do is pray that these documents would make a powerful impact uh, in our nation. It's already gone through, uh, I don't know how many years ago, uh, through the American cycle where these church leaders have hashed and rehashed these documents. It's gone to South America. Now it's going to Europe and to other places. But pray that God would raise up Apollos's and Calvin's and Knox's and Luther's and others with the courage of the Spirit to confront the idols of the day and to confront the compromised leaders of our day. Because I don't think anything less than that is going to rescue the church. You know, the church is going to be annihilated if we do not restore antithesis. So may we be a church that is filled with the Spirit, holding to antithesis, willing to lovingly confront the confronters on their own turf. Mark Driscoll rightly said, if you do not offend people with the gospel then you offend God. And I think that is so true. The emergent church does not have an offensive gospel. It sounds similar, but they do not have an offensive gospel. Paul said that the cross of Jesus Christ was a stumbling block to Jews and that it was foolishness to the Greeks, 1 Corinthians 123. And he said, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased, Galatians 5, verse 11. And so, antithesis is not an option. And yet, the church in Omaha is very reticent to refute anything. Now, they will affirm truth. Yeah, there's churches out there. They will affirm truth but they will not reject doctrine and they will certainly not distance themselves from heretics. All you have to do is look at who all was embraced. You know, the Roman Catholics and the liberals in this Luis Palau crusade in America. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. There is not antithesis uh, within the church of Jesus Christ. Philip Johnson uh, rightly complains, What's popular these days, even among professing Christians, is glorying in ambiguity and uncertainty and then saying, can't we all just get along? McLaren, Padgett, Jones, and other emerging church leaders have been asked to take stands on many issues, but they're not willing to refute anything. Uh, When asked about his opinion on homosexuality, McLaren says, I have my own opinions, but I don't believe that the smartest thing for me to do is to go around and make those varying opinions a reason to separate myself from other Christians. I fellowship with Christians who have a diversity of opinion of this homosexuality. Uh, Moeller has analyzed the writings of these men, and he's come to this conclusion. When it comes to issues such as the exclusivity of the gospel, the identity of Jesus Christ as both fully human, fully divine... What Elder Swab talked about earlier, the authoritative character of Scripture as written revelation, the clear teaching of Scripture concerning issues such as homosexuality, this movement simply refuses to answer the questions. Now, we've got to apply this to ourselves. Here's the question that I have of you How much have you been influenced by the spirit of the emerging church? can't we all just get along may sound like biblical love, but it does not even remotely resemble the Christianity of Apollos, let alone that of Christ and of the other apostles. We must be willing to refute error or we have a compromised Christianity. Without antithesis, Schaefer says we've given up everything. Eighth, Apollos didn't just refute them privately. Verse 28 says he refuted the Jews publicly. Now, why publicly? Well, he wanted the errors of these Jewish leaders exposed for all to see. He didn't want other people sucked in by their heresy, and this automatically set up an institutional standard that elsewhere in the Scripture is known as the traditions of the apostles. You see, it's not enough to have the Bible. You've got to systematically teach the Bible. Now, that's what the Westminster Confession of Faith is. It's the systematic teaching of the Scripture given as a Protestant Tradition. Now, let me explain, because some people get nervous about the whole word tradition, but tradition is unavoidable. The difference between Romanist tradition and Protestant tradition is that Romanist tradition adds information to the Bible. In fact, contradicts the Bible, in our opinion. They say, no, 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 it's no contradiction, but it adds information, lots of stuff in their tradition that's not in the Bible, whereas Protestant tradition is simply the systematic teaching of the Bible, and Protestant tradition says we may not add anything to the Scripture. Our tradition is a subordinate standard to what the Word of God has to say. And so the Bible is not against tradition, it's against the traditions of man. Let me read you some Scriptures. 1 Corinthians eleven two says, remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. His traditions were the systematic teachings of the Bible. Apollos was teaching those traditions as he had just been more recently more perfectly instructed in them by uh, 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 Aquila and Priscilla. Paul said to the Corinthians that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6 everything he taught was from the bible everything his traditions were simply the systematization of the bible second corinthians 215 says brethren stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught and so it's not enough to have the bible let me tell you something every denomination that's taken the stand no creed but the bible has gone liberal it's inevitable it's inevitable. You have to have tradition. You have to have the systematic teaching of the Bible. Second Thessalonians 3.8 says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. And so the apostolic interpretation of the Bible was the thing that distinguished between those who were in the church and the heretics who were outside the church. That's the function of creeds. And the early church fathers claimed that their traditions that they were teaching uh, were the traditions of the apostles, the systematization of the Bible. Uh, That's all they claimed that they were. They were not what later Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox claimed that it's an additional information and it's a parallel authority. No, they said it's a subordinate authority. And you can't believe anything that is not explicitly from the Bible. And I can give you loads of quotes from the early church uh, that said that. Now, I bring this up because I know there's a tendency, even in our circles, for people to think creeds are not biblical. We don't need creeds. And uh, another way of um, saying this is we must realize it is biblical to have a set of doctrines, whether written or unwritten, that distinguish the church. That's what a creed is. Everyone knew the doctrines of Apollos. Everybody knew what they were. The Westminster Confession is a tradition. And so the issue is not creeds versus non-creeds. The issue is, is your creed in submission to the Scripture? Um, The emergent church does not want a creed, or at least does not want a creed that's binding or authoritative, Uh, They don't want subordinate standards because the Bible is not a standard for them. They've thrown off all standards and all authority. And this is one of the reasons why Mark Driscoll left the emergent church. He said, the lie that says no preaching, no authority, no church discipline is from the serpent. These are all marks of the current house church and emerging church movements. We must beware that much of today's church movement is birthed from the postmodern view of the rejection of authority and truth. Thus, they reject authority and have no designated leader. They reject objective truth and the community determines truth. The rejection of authority also negates church discipline. The serpent still says, you can be like God. In other words, you could decide for yourself. So, my, here's my question for you. Where are you on this issue of a doctrinal divide? Are you willing to even have one? Apollos taught apostolic doctrine. He was creedal. And some of you have very little respect for the creeds. Your attitude is, hey, it's just me and the Bible. Well, what you've done is you set yourself up as a creed. Creeds are unavoidable. The question is, do you have a humble creed? Or do you have the arrogance to say it's going to be your creed against the church of the last 2,000 years? That is arrogance. We don't demand implicit faith like the Romanists do, but we do believe that the church has faithfully handed down a body of truth, and we need to take it seriously, and any movement that ditches 2,000 years of creeds and doctrine is not of God. Now, the ninth feature of Apollos' Christianity is that it was analytical. It was objective. It was something that required reasoning. Objective, not subject. Now, by objective, I mean this. The truth is true in all ages, all circumstances, all places and people. And no matter where you have it, the truth is true, okay? That's what objective truth means. It's not just your subjective opinion that changes from uh, time to time. Verse 28 says that Apollos was showing from the Scriptures. Now, those Scriptures were already 1,500 years old. And yet, he wanted them to believe him. Why? Because truth does not change. And then secondly... He was demonstrating or proving or showing something. See, the fact that the Jews did not believe what he said did not make that truth non-objective or subjective. Okay? Uh, Jews may have continued to disbelieve it. Now, in contrast, modern church... Emergent church people appeal to the fact there's so many different interpretations of the Bible out there, so many different denominations, as proof positive there is no objective truth in the Bible. You know, that can be good for you, this can be good for you, and this will be good for me. And here's the question you need to ask them. Is your statement that there is no objective truth itself objectively true, or can I just ignore what you said because it's your own subjective, unfounded opinion? I mean, they don't think through that, but they are constantly making these kinds of logical fallacies in their their arguments. They want you to disbelieve all kinds of things, but they passionately want you to believe what they're saying, what they're writing. Okay, And so, uh, Tony Jones uh, said this, We must stop looking for some objective truth that is available when we delve into the text of the Bible. Notice the word must. We must stop looking for some objective truth. Now, that's a contradiction. They hate authority, but they have to appeal to some kind of authority in order to reject this authority. And that's why uh, Rushduni says infallibility is an inescapable concept. If you reject the infallibility of the Word of God, automatically you have set up some other authority in its place, automatically. It's it's inescapable. McLaren said, In the postmodern world, we become post-analytical, post-objective. Now, what they're trying to say, at least if you read them positively, they're trying to say, We've got to have more humility and stop thinking that we can figure out the Bible. In fact, he's so postmodern in his thinking, he says, I don't even know what I believe, let alone what the Bible believes. Yeah, let me quote him on that. If I seem to show too little respect for your opinions or thoughts, be assured I have equal doubts about my own. And I don't mind if you think I'm wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong about many things, although I'm not sure exactly which things I'm wrong about. I'm even sure I'm wrong about what I think I'm right about, in at least some cases. So whatever you think I'm wrong, you could be right. Now, while he's trying to portray humility, there is a vast difference between humility that says, hey, our interpretations of the Bible are not infallible. Only the Bible is infallible, and creeds have been wrong. Okay, So we recognize that. That's humility, but theirs is not humility. What they've gone over to saying is that there is no objective truth. It's postmodern skepticism. Stanley Grant's one... Emergent church spokesman said, can Christian theology make any claim to speak objective truth in a context in which various communities offer diverse paradigms, each of which is ultimately theological? And his answer is no. Now, you know what? This makes for a very welcoming community but it makes also for a very confusing movement. And the wreckage that is going to come out of this movement in the next 50 years is going to be disastrous. It is going to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. One emergent leader on his webpage with the very revealing name of theooze.com said this, "...the various parts of the faith community are like mercury. Try to touch the liquid or constrain it, and the substance will resist." Rather than force people to fall into line, an oozy community tolerates differences and treats people who hold opposing views with great dignity. To me, that's the essence of the emerging church. And it leads to an anything-goes theology. Let me read you the title page for Brian McLaren's massively popular book, A Generous Orthodoxy, where he uses the language of orthodoxy, but he redefines that orthodoxy. The subtitle of A Generous Orthodoxy says, Why I am a missional plus evangelical plus post-Protestant plus liberal slash conservative plus mystical slash poetic plus biblical plus charismatic slash contemplative plus fundamentalist slash Calvinist plus Anabaptist slash Anglican. Wow, couldn't get further apart than those. Plus Methodist plus Catholic plus green plus incarnational plus depressed yet hopeful, plus emergent, plus unfinished Christian. Now, he does have a lot of humor in his um, his books, and uh, he does try to get people to think, but every one of his books are mushy on everything and want other people to be mushy as well. Now, let's distinguish that mushiness that never declares anything to be wrong and is nervous about... Uh, they all have theological... Dialogues, but they're nervous about anything that's too certain on that. Let's distinguish that with what we're trying to accomplish in our church because they do have a legitimate gripe about the ungraciousness of fundamentalism and the lack of humility and the contentiousness and the backstabbing and the lack of love. I think they have a legitimate gripe about us on that. We, too, disagree with that, and we, too, have had to repent of that from time to time. We're seeking to inculcate into this congregation a love that's willing to say, be patient with him, be patient with her, because God is not finished with them yet. Uh, we want to accept people who have been embraced by Christ, even though they disagree with us. Uh, we, we want to have love toward them. We don't require people to believe everything that we believe before they can join the church. In fact, there's very little that we require that you have to believe in order to be discipled. But here's the point. We have a standard to which you're being discipled. Right? We have a standard that officers are held to. We have a standard that uh, we are preaching from the pulpit. There's something to which you're being discipled. And thus, though we are Reformed, we have welcomed non-Reformed Arminians into our congregation, but we've made clear to them, look... This church is Calvinistic. We're going to be trying to disciple you into this. We don't want you to believe it unless you can see it from the Scripture, but this is the direction that we're going, and we don't want you undermining the church by starting up Bible studies uh, on teaching everybody and why Arminianism is such a cool doctrine. Uh, You've got to realize if you're part of this community, you're being discipled, okay, and you're going to be cool with that. We accept Baptists and respect Baptists and their opinions. We don't want them believing Presbyterianism just because we teach it. We want them to see it clearly in the Scripture, but that does not mean all views are equal. It does not mean all views are equal. We aren't cynical about truth simply because there are differences of view. What we're trying to do, we must not allow patience and graciousness to slide over into cynicism about the truth like it has in the the, um, emerging church. Hopefully that makes sense. Of course, we tell our people, we have no authority except the authority of the Bible. We don't want you believing anything unless you can see it from the Bible. And that's exactly what Apollos did. Verse 28, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. See, Paul praised the Bereans for checking out everything that he said. Here's the apostle. You don't question an apostle, do you? Oh, he said, you better not believe it unless you see it in the Scriptures. He praised them for doing that. And yet that's not what the, um, what the emergent church does. It does not submit... "...to the inerrant authority of Scripture over all of life and in all that it says." You see, this is what makes the Bible totally different from all other literature. It is the power of God. It is the authority of God. And the Bible, for example, uh, says that homosexuality is a sin and a crime. We believe it. We don't question it. We accept it from the Bible." Now, that does not mean we hate homosexuals. We love them enough to call them to repentance from their sins, just like we call all other sinners uh, to repentance. But we let the Bible define sin and grace, and we uh, point out that God hates all sin and that God's judgment's coming against all sin. Matthew one twenty-one. we teach that Jesus came to save His people from their sin. Now, in contrast, Brian McLaren says, frankly, many of us don't know what we should think about homosexuality We've heard all sides, but no position has yet won our confidence so that we can say it seems good to the Holy Spirit in us. That alienates us from both the liberals and conservatives who seem to know exactly what we should think. Our approach is not to dialogue with people and hold our opinions in reserve. It is to ask the Scripture and to submit our opinions to the wisdom of the Bible. You see, when Jesus said, Thy word is truth... That is totally different than saying thy word is true. If I say thy word is true, what am I saying? I'm saying I'm the judge of the truthfulness or the falsity of the word of God. We can't do that. To say thy word is truth is saying the Bible is the standard by which all truth claims are judged. And when my opinions differ from the Bible... I am being called into repentance to change my opinions. That's what thy word is truth means. It is the standard. And this, the Bible, is totally different from all other literature. This is why Brian McLaren errs so greatly when he says, as in so many issues these days, the problem isn't the Bible. He's trying to sound really nice here. It's not the Bible. It's the assumptions we bring to the Bible about how it's supposed to be interpreted. We make demands of the biblical writers that we don't make of any other writers. Hello? Doesn't he recognize the Bible is different than any other book? But he goes on, he says, I'm not sure our demands are sensible or fair at all. As an analogy, I often refer to the Wizard of Oz in my teaching. Does this mean that I believe Dorothy was a historical figure? No. It means I accept the story of Oz as being part of our culture and that I can use it to illustrate truth or provide analogies to truth. Now, I think all of us recognize this is bizarre, this is wrong, this is way out there, but here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Do you reject little tiny portions of the Bible that are not convenient, that are not pretty, that are not politically correct, that are embarrassing, that are legalistic? Oh, that Bible passage, that's a little bit legalistic. Do we do that? If we're doing that, we have started down the road into postmodern Christianity. We've not gone nearly as far as they have. It's the same principle that's leading us there. And so when we've got our finger pointing out at the emergent church, there's three fingers pointing back at us. All of us can be subject to this. And of course, comparing Dorothy as a non-historical figure to the figures of the Bible is just rank heresy. Apollos treats Jesus as a real historical figure that no one in his audience could deny. Now, I'm sure there was plenty there who wished Jesus would go away, wished that they could deny that he was a historical figure. They could not. They could not do it. They knew Jesus was historical figure. Now, 2,000 years removed from that event, we still have pastors who are trying to be pastors while questioning the historicity of the Gospels. I have in my file a printed sermon preached by Dr. Goff Uh, one of the ministers at St. Luke's United Methodist Church here in Omaha. He's not emergent. He's an older liberal who denies the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, other truths. He says, look, these are really not important uh, things. Let's not argue about these. We've got to be holding on to the central issues. But his language is very interesting, very similar to emergent language. The sermon ends by saying this. What about the questions related to the virgin birth, the Bethlehem Christmas, the miracles, the miracles? the resurrection, and is coming again. Isn't it interesting that when we begin to think of how we experience God today, notice that experience is His criteria, how we experience God today, rather than as people profess to experience Him in the past, there is His skepticism of anything others believe, anything other people uh, have experienced. And so He's gone from, modernism into postmodernism this guy's sounding very much like an emergent he goes on when we do that those questions no longer seem so important in other words our experience of gods our experience of god helps us to realize what the bible says about jesus rising from the dead and how he was born and those things are really not, are not that important but he continues he says the past illogicals become symbols of meaning the future illogicals become matters of faith that do not require affirmation for hope to reign that is such a sad theology it almost makes me cry when i read that it is a hopeless theology paul says we can have no hope without the truth of history for example romans 15:4 says for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. How important is history to you? Have you bought into the postmodern idea that history is bunk? I certainly hope not. If you've bought into the idea that history is bunk, it is going to negatively affect you for years and years to come. Do you teach history and apply history to your children? One of the reasons we've started this twice-a-year providential history festival is to help give people a renewed joy in understanding history and how it practically relates in our lives and teaching our kids how to teach providential history. It is so important in our lives. Christianity is rooted in history. Covenant theology connects every generation with history. History is important. The last lesson from Apollos is that his Christianity was not pluralistic. It says he was showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. There are not multiple Christs. Uh, There are not multiple ways. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Apollos lived and died for Christ. He fought and argued for Christ. He knew there was no salvation outside of Christ. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. John 15, verse 5. Peter said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now you contrast that very narrow, rigid, you might say bigoted, you know, fundamentalistic perspective that the Scripture lays out. Contrast that with the broad, nice vision of Tony Campolo. Oh, this sounds so nice to the emergent people. Tony Campolo says, What I think I can say is, and this is where I get in trouble, I'm not so sure that when this life is over that all possibilities for salvation are over. In another place he says, what can I say to an Islamic brother? And I've got objections to even using that term brother. But what can I say to an Islamic brother who has fed the hungry and clothed the naked? You say, but he hasn't a personal relationship with Christ. I would argue with that. And I would say from a Christian perspective, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it unto Christ. You did have a personal relationship with Christ. You just didn't know it. Dallas Willard agrees with this. Dallas Willard says, It is possible for someone who does not know Jesus to be saved. Brian McLaren also rejects the meaning of Christ's statement, uh, which says, No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's his interpretation. For too many people, the name Jesus has become a symbol of exclusion, as if Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, actually means... I am in the way of people seeking truth and life. I won't let anyone get to God unless He comes through me. But that is exactly what Jesus said. You read through the Gospel of John sometime and you will see how exclusionary the Gospel is and where Jesus says He is the rock and anyone who rejects Him will be crushed by this rock. Here's what Peter said. Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. It is precisely this narrow way that the early church was walking in that the emergent church is emerging from and leaving. It is really an emergent church because it's leaving the one true church. And what's scary about this is so many of these people are formerly evangelicals, some of them even fundamentalists. Why in the world would they go the way that they are going? Their thinking was not shaped by the Bible. I think that their thinking has been shaped by modern government school system, which only teaches... Postmodernism. And it only stands to reason that when you send your kids to be intensively discipled by the priesthood of humanism in the government schools 12 years or more, they're going to start thinking like postmodernists. That's all they've ever been taught. And though we are not emergent, we must beware lest any of these symptoms even remotely affect us. Because there, but for the grace of God, we would go. Every one of us could go there, but for the grace of God. And so let's glory in the Athanasiuses of the past who stood for the doctrine of the Trinity even when all the world was against them. He said, well, if all the world's against me, Athanasius is against the world because I've got to stand on the Word of God. Let's glory in Martin Luther and Calvin who would not budge. Let's glory in the D.A. Carsons, the John Pipers, the Al Mollers who are taking hits because they're standing against error. It is a lonely task to be a reformer like Apollos and they need our prayers. And for our part, let's make their job easier by being neither enlightenment, pre-modern, modern, modern, or post-modern. Let's forget about conforming our thinking to the world. Let's be biblicist. Let us be thoroughly grounded in the Scriptures, thinking God's thoughts after Him. Let's embrace the Christianity of Apollos. Amen. Father God, it is very grievous when we look around us and we see the church falling apart and falling for everything because they are not grounded in Your Word. And I pray that we would not let our children to fall into the same errors, but that we would ground them in the faith and defend the faith which has been once and for all given to the saints. Please, Father, spare us from stumbling. You have said in Jude, You are able to keep us from stumbling. And we pray that You would bring reformation to the church of Jesus Christ in our nation. We desperately need it. Prosper the ministries of those like uh, D.A. Carson and Albert Moeller and, and Peter Jones and so many people who are trying to stand up for truth. Bless their words, Father. Do not let them fall to the ground as they are conformed to your word, but I pray that there would be a reformation and a revival that is greater than any that we have seen in this world before. Uh, for the glory of Your name, for the glory of Your Son's kingdom, for the rejoicing of the angels in heaven, uh, for the rejoicing and the health of Your bride, the Christ, for the jealousy that You have toward Your truth. Uh, May the church of Jesus Christ become a bride without spot or wrinkle. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.